If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, we're going to pick it up uh, about halfway through at verse 44 this morning. And back in 2005, Israeli prisoners were being used to clear away rubble in the city of Megiddo that a new prison might be built. Uh, don't miss the irony of that. But as they were clearing this rubble away, one of the prisoners came across something unusual. And after archaeologists finished excavating the area, what they found was an elaborate set of mosaics, very old mosaics, dating all the way back to the 2nd or 3rd centuries. Laid directly into the floor of an ancient home, these were a significant find for Christianity. One mosaic that sat at the center was an elaborate piece, 6 by 9 meters large, and had two fish at the center. The second mosaic explained the significance of the first there was an inscription that said that these mosaics were commissioned by a woman named Akeptus, who was the owner of this house and who hosted a church there. But the other part of the inscription was even more important. It described how this, these two mosaics had been paid for by a Roman army officer named Gaianus, quotes, in remembrance of the God, Jesus Christ. So what we have here is a woman who has opened up her home and allowed it to be used as a meeting place for a local church. More significantly, we have from very, very early into church history the affirmation that Jesus Christ was indeed worshipped as God. But more significantly for us this morning, we see that there was this man, this Roman soldier who paid and had his name publicly and perpetually attached to this mosaic whereupon the early Christians would have gathered to worship around the fellowship of the Lord's Supper. Here he allowed himself to be identified with this religion that at that time was not well thought of by the Roman world, even by his fellow soldiers. Christianity was not an official religion of the, Ro of the Roman Empire at this point. And yet here this man, a soldier of the Roman Empire, would do this. So the question is, why would he take the chance of reprisal from his superiors, from his fellow soldiers? Why would he so publicly identify with Christ and with such a large amount of money given over to such an elaborate peace? Well, this morning we will find the answers to those questions and much more in the passage before us. For almost two years, we've been moving through the Gospel of Luke with a few breaks, and now we've come to the climax of this work, this Gospel, wherein we see Jesus becoming the Savior of the world, the very theme of Luke's Gospel. Follow along as I begin reading at verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. 
Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. May God bless the reading of his word. All of Christianity hinges on what takes place in these verses. Last time we saw Jesus being crucified, being wrongly condemned and strung up on a Roman cross. We saw the historical reliability of these events, that it's not just a fairy tale or a myth, but something that actually happened in time and space. But in these verses, we're told the significance of those events. We're told what those events mean and why they are important for us today. This morning, as we begin to uh, understand the significance and meaning, we first want to understand the power of the cross. The power of the cross. In verse 44, we see it was that Jesus, having been hung on the cross for, for a few hours, now at about the sixth hour, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, we don't figure time the way that they did in those days. So for us, the sixth hour and the ninth hour would be noon and three o'clock p.m. And so for these three hours, darkness goes over the land. Now, historians have looked at this and tried to take it as an honest account and tried to understand what would cause the sky to go dark for these three hours. And the most normal explanation was some kind of solar eclipse. The problem that other historians and scholars have pointed out is that that doesn't work. Because this is during the time of the Jewish Passover, which takes time during a full moon, and a solar eclipse only takes place during a new moon. And so some just deny that it happened at all. The problem with that is ancient historians, not at all connected to the church, describe this event, this strange darkness taking place. And so what we mean, what we must understand if we are to trust God's word at all is that this is a supernatural event. And if it's a supernatural event, it means it was God's work, and it was God's work then why was he doing it? What is the meaning? Why would God send darkness like this over the whole land for those three hours? The simplest way to arrive at an explanation is to ask, has God ever done anything like this before? And the answer is, yes, he has. If you go back and you read about Exodus 10, you see that the penultimate uh, plague that God sent upon Egypt for Pharaoh's defiance and sin and not releasing his people was a plague of darkness that lasted for three days over the Egyptians. Again, it was an act of judgment from God. Much, much later in the prophets Joel and Amos, Joel chapter 3 and Amos 8, God uses this imagery of darkness as a promise for a coming day of judgment. Not on Egypt, though, but on Israel. On his own people, he would bring judgment for their sins. And so he says that on that day declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts in the morning and your songs into lamentation. I will make it like the morning of an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. That's what God promised would take place one day. And so now we come back to Luke and we see this darkness taking place unfolding upon his one and only son at noon and ask, what does this darkness mean? It means this, the judgment of God has come. 
Just as he promised, God is unleashing his wrath, but it's not fallen on Israel. It's fallen on God's own son, the perfect Israelite, Jesus Christ. And so in this darkness, we see a sign that Jesus is making atonement for God's pardon. Jesus on the cross is making atonement for God's pardon. Just as he promised throughout this gospel and the others, just as the Father had promised throughout the Old Testament, Jesus is taking upon himself the wrath of God against sinful humanity. Isaiah 53 has been helpful and I think was often in Luke's mind. And here, Jesus, we are told, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Like the bullseye of a target covering sinful humanity, the piercing arrow of God's condemnation has struck Jesus instead of us. He was our substitute. And God made this clear even in his own day. Even if the people did not remember, they didn't understand the significance of the darkness of judgment simply in the providence of God's timing. If they were at all understanding what is taking place at the temple, they would understand what is taking place in the cross. The ancient historian Josephus, a devout Jew, but no, in no way a believer in Christ, records for us that at this time it was in the morning and at the ninth hour that the priests were offering daily sacrifices for Israel. And so on this day, on this day in Jerusalem, as the priests were going about their duties, fulfilling them in darkness, there was a better high priest offering himself as a better sacrifice on the cross. Everything that those offerings did were finding their fulfillment in Jesus at that moment. Now, no more sacrifices would be needed. No more would need to be offered for the people of Israel. For here on the cross, Jesus endured hell that we might know heaven and the joy of forgiveness of sins. No blood of a bull or a goat could ever do that, but the precious blood of Christ can and did. On the cross, in just the span of three hours, perfect, lasting, final atonement was made so that we might enjoy pardon, that forgiveness might be granted to all who have faith in Jesus. But there's more. Through the work of the cross, we also have new access to God's presence. New access to God's presence. Luke says that while the sun's light faded, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now, what's again, what's this curtain? What's he talking about here? Well, it takes us again back to the temple. This was a massive barrier that separated the holy place where only the priest could go from the most holy place in the temple where only one priest, the high priest, could go once a year to make atonement for sins. Behind that curtain lay the Ark of the Covenant, where again, once a year, a high priest of Israel would go in there on the Day of Atonement, would pour out the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat, and thereby hold back God's wrath against the sins of the people. And that curtain that separated what was taking place there from the rest of the temple, from the rest of the people, was a reminder of two things, the holiness of God and the sinfulness of His people. Now, now as Jesus finishes his work on the cross, that curtain is supernaturally slashed in two as if by some cosmic sword. What does it mean? It means there's no more priests. There's no more sacrifices. There's no more human mediators between God and his people. There is no barrier because Christ 
has passed through that barrier for us. And so now perfect immediate fellowship is possible with God through the perfect mediator, Jesus. The author of the Hebrews says, we do not any longer need to stand far off afraid of God outside the temple. Instead, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us. This is the result of those last three hours of Christ on the cross. Atonement for our pardon and new access to God's presence. And all of this happened as the accomplishment of God's purpose. The accomplishment of God's purpose. At the end, you'll notice of this time, Jesus calls out with a loud voice saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus quoting from Psalm 31, but there it simply says, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus is addressing God as Father. Why is that significant? Because in the other gospels, the last time he's addressed God, it's not been his Father. He quoted from Psalm 22 and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time that Jesus prayed and did not call God his Father, a sign of his intimate fellowship with him. Why? Because for those three hours, he was forsaken by his Father. He endured not fellowship, but wrath. But what Luke is signaling is the work is finished. It's done. And Jesus is once again restored to his place of fellowship with the Father. We'll talk about them more in a minute, but just think about what Luke is telling us, what he is signaling, what our minds should be filled with if we know the biblical storyline when he brings up these women who want to embalm Jesus with spices and ointments after his death. They can only begin to make preparations because the Sabbath is about to begin and they must rest from their work. And we're told in verse 56 that they were indeed obedient to God's law and on the Sabbath rested according to the command. But they had no idea that Jesus was about to fulfill that command for them. Do you remember the opening chapters of Genesis? How it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it goes on to describe over the span of six days all the ways that he made everything that was made. From the most beautiful nebulas in the sky to the smallest cells of the human body. And at the end of that six days, on the seventh, we are told, he rested. Now what does that mean? Does that mean, God, boy, that's, you make a universe, you're tired. And that's not, what, that's not what the Bible is telling us. It's not what God is saying. By telling us that he rested, it's saying that he ceased from his work. The work was finished. It was done. It was complete. And now here's Jesus at the end of his time making atonement. In John's gospel, we are told that he set, cries out, it is finished. And then the words in Luke, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What is he saying? Father, I'm done. It's over. I've accomplished the task that you've called me to do and now I trust that I'm coming to you again. Jesus doesn't just die from suffering he's endured. He willingly ends his life at this moment, finishing his active work of salvation, resting on the Sabbath. In the grave, he ceases from his ministry having accomplished all the Father has had for him to do. Does that mean, though, that the grave is meaningless? That it's just a byproduct of his death on the cross? Hardly. Hardly. We've seen the power of the cross. We must also understand the purpose of the grave. The purpose of the grave. Luke tells us that the lifeless body of Jesus was taken down from the cross, wrapped in a linen shroud, and laid in a tomb cut in stone. Now, it's not wrong if we wonder, why did Jesus have to die? 
After all, the work of propitiating God's wrath, of satisfying His anger, righteous anger towards sin, was accomplished. Atonement had been made. Couldn't He just have come down at that moment, triumphant from the cross, having endured our shame and our sin? Why did He have to die, and and why did He have to be buried? Why do we have mention of the grave? In short, no, He couldn't have lived after the cross. And yes, there is significance to the grave. First, these things show us Jesus' true humanity. Jesus' true humanity. Throughout history, at various times, uh, both inside and outside the church, people have tried to attack Jesus' humanity. They're very quick to affirm that He was a God, but not that He was a man. And so you have people that were claiming to be Christians, but were in fact false believers who believed false doctrine. Most infamous of them all were the Docetists, and they specifically deny the true humanity of Christ. Their name comes from the Greek word dikeo, which means to seem or to appear. And that was their view of Jesus' humanity. He wasn't really a person. He wasn't really a man. It was just an elaborate illusion. He had the appearance of humanity, but enjoyed no human flesh. So they would say things like this. When Jesus walked on the beach, he left no footprints. Why? Because he didn't have a body. He just looked like he had a body. What's the problem with that kind of belief? The problem is, if there's no body that was taken down from the cross outside Jerusalem that day, then we have no Savior. We have no perfect mediator between God and man. If Jesus was not a real man without a real body and a real humanity, he could not be the second Adam, as Paul calls him in Romans 5. That means no earned righteousness by his life, no substitute in judgment by his death, no example to follow for us, and no sympathetic high priest about which we just sang. And so the Apostle John, in God's providence, as some of these distortions are are beginning to come about. He writes in his first letter and he starts it by by essentially saying, "Do do you want to know about the man that we preach, the man that we proclaim? Do you want to know about Jesus? Let me tell you about him. And so John 1 begins like this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. What is he saying? He's saying, look, we were with Jesus. We lived with him. We were around him. We ministered alongside him. We heard him speak with a real voice. We saw him live among us, sweating real sweat, bleeding real blood, crying real tears. We touched his body and there was a physical form. When we walked with him on the beach, there were footprints. We felt his affectionate embrace. We felt the weight of his body as we reclined together at meals and the roughness of his carpenter hands. There was no mistaking this fact for the Apostle John. Jesus was a true person with a physical body. And what that means for us is that he is fully human and fully God, the perfect and only mediator between a holy God and sinful humanity that we so desperately need for him to be our Savior. 
And so Pastor Jeff Thomas asked this, what clearer or stronger proof of Jesus' humanity could there be than the fact that he died? Nothing proclaims the frailty and the utter humiliation of our human condition as powerfully as a corpse. In fact, there he leads us to the next thing that we see. The fact that Jesus' death solidifies his work on the cross. For here we don't just see his full humanity, but also his full humility. His full humility. The humiliation of Christ, that is the humbling of himself from glory to humanity, was not complete without his death and burial. Why? Because of a verse that almost all of you that have grown up in church have memorized from Romans 6. The wages of sin is death. This is the the paycheck that comes to us because of our sin, death. Just as Adam was told on that day in the Garden of Eden that on the day he took and ate of the forbidden fruit, he would surely die, so Jesus now tastes death for all of us because of the fullness of his substitution in our place. Such was the completeness of his saving work that Jesus took upon not only our sin, but its consequences. And so through his death, there is no part of God's justice that is not met in his ministry for us. And his burial confirms that. Do Jesus' followers still taste death? Yes, they do. But they do it much differently now that Jesus has tasted death and conquered it. Hebrews, again, is helpful as it reminds us that because Christ's people share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Though painful, the believer need not fear death anymore. Though we experience it, we do so without fear, remembering what Paul says in Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We die fully confident like Jesus that when we pass from this life to the next, it is into God's hands that we trust our spirit. Luke wants us to grasp the power of the cross and the purpose of the grave ultimately so that we will better embrace the pattern of discipleship. The pattern of discipleship. This is the last thing that we see from these verses. Notice what is going on around Jesus in his death. Luke says that when Jesus breathed his last, there was a centurion who saw what was taking place. And what was his response in verse 47? He praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. We have two things going on here. First of all, Luke is once again pressing into his Roman audience. Jesus was innocent by your own people. But more than that, here is a man who had saving faith. You say, well, how how can praising God be evidence of saving faith? Quite simply this, the Bible makes clear that no one praises God apart from the new birth. Unless there is new life within us, we simply curse the one true God and worship a false God. Then we see when all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle that is the crucifixion of Christ... They saw what had taken place, that they returned home beating their breast. They saw his innocence in his trial. They saw his graciousness from the cross. And now they saw the darkness of God's displeasure. And all of that has not left them unchanged. They go home beating their breast, a sign of mourning and repentance, saying, what has happened? What have we done? And Legan Duncan wonders if this is in fact 
the seedbed of Pentecost. When some 50 days from now, 3,000 people will hear the Apostle Peter preach about Christ's death and resurrection and be saved. Finally, Luke shows that all his acquaintances and, and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. These are his friends and his disciples. And Luke says that during all of this, they've stood at a distance. Now, at some point, we know that Mary and the Apostle John were at least close enough that Jesus could see them and address them from the cross. Hanging about to bear the sins of the world, he looks at John and says, Behold your mother, mother, behold your son. In other words, I'm about to die, and now my best friend, John, I want you to take care of my mom. Because I won't be able to do so anymore. But they're not at the foot of the cross, nor do they remain close for very long. Though the other 11 apostles are gone, some of these female disciples were around, but all of them, we're told, were fearfully watching at a distance. They were bewildered at what had happened, given who they believed Jesus to be. But emerging from all these people comes a man named Joseph. And it's in him that we see a pattern of discipleship, a pattern that begins with courageous faith. Courageous faith. Luke says there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council. Now, what is this council? Well, this is the Sanhedrin that we've seen over the last few weeks, the highest ruling authority in Israel, the one who condemned Jesus for blasphemy and had him crucified, executed at the hands of the Romans. Yet unlike most of them who sinfully conspired to kill Jesus, Luke says, Joseph was a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. Why? He was looking for the kingdom of God. Luke is telling us that this man was, in fact, a disciple of Jesus. And yet, like another man named Nicodemus in a similar position, John's gospel tells us that they were only secretly disciples for fear of their fellow Jews. But now at Jesus' death, he makes his faith known. And in doing so, displays a tremendous courage. Notice that he goes to Pilate and asks for the body. What makes that so courageous? What makes that so bold? Several things. First of all, no one asks for the body of those crucified because no one wants to be associated with them. You know, today you can associate with a criminal and before anything really bad happens to you, you're going to get some kind of a trial. Rome is not the United States. Guilt by association happened very often. More than that, think about this, 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 the culture of shame that existed. So that if you were too closely associated with something shameful like a criminal who was crucified, your social status went in the tank. Second, under Roman law, the crucified were not granted the right to a burial. Usually the bodies were left to hang until the birds picked the bones clean. On top of all this, you'll remember that Pilate didn't like the Sanhedrin, did not like the council that Joseph was a part of. Just despite these religious leaders, Pilate insisted on hanging the charge that Jesus was crucified under king of the Jews over his head. And the council went to them and said, no, 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 don't put that. Put, he claimed to be king of the Jews. But Pilate said, buzz off and get out of here. This is what I'm putting. This is your king, the one that we're crucifying. Pilate at any time could have done just about anything he wanted to with this man, but more so it was his own people that he risked some kind of reprisal from, in which he showed the most courage for by asking for this body, Joseph is publicly 
openly identifying as a disciple of Jesus Christ. He risks some kind of even violent response from the council. And the reality is, he may have indeed suffered that. Here is a man who was talked about in all four Gospels, but is never heard of again. All throughout Acts, all throughout the letters, Joseph of Arimathea never shows up, perhaps paying the ultimate price for his courageous faith. But notice he also here offers a costly sacrifice. A costly sacrifice. God says, This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid in him a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. Unlike a tomb where many people were buried together and already reeked of the stench of death, this was a new tomb. A new tomb that would have been costly. In fact, being a man of wealth of importance, it's assumed that this was in fact the grave that Joseph had carved out for himself. And it's interesting that in the past we've seen how the acts and the plans of sinful men, though sinful, though they will be judged for them and held responsible for them, were also part of God's plan. Now we see the opposite. We see the, the plans and the intentions and the actions of a righteous man also following in along God's plan. For here in Joseph's devotion to Jesus, we see the fulfillment of Scripture. For in Isaiah 53, the Lord says of his servant, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. I imagine this act of costly sacrifice by Joseph was motivated by his respect and his love for Jesus as he wanted to honor him. But I think even more so was motivated ultimately in God's providence and sovereignty by the Father's love for His Son. For His obedience, even to death on the cross, the Father wanted no lowly grave for Jesus. Even putting His words in the mouth of the prophet Isaiah, God knew where His Son's body would lay in death and who would be generous enough to put it there. Notice also how Joseph inspires others. Verse 55, The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. Encouraged by Joseph's example, now these women were also willing to identify with Jesus and offer something costly to honor him in his death. They, they, they see Joseph's boldness in asking for this body. We, we can only imagine perhaps even pulling the nails out of his hands and his feet and then, then helping to wrap his body in linen and carrying it away off to this grave. And, and, and with tears on their face, they begin to follow to see where are they going to lay Jesus. And though thankful for what they see, Joseph hastily doing and embalming the body of Jesus, they reckon in their minds it's not enough. We want to honor him even more. So they go home and begin to, pray, to prepare so that when the Sabbath is complete, on the next Sunday morning, they will go and finish the job of anointing Jesus' body with these spices. All of this was not cheap, neither for Joseph nor for them, but in their minds, Jesus was worth it. And in this way, we see this pattern of discipleship emerge there's a sense in which nothing that Joseph and these women did can ever be repeated. That they, they had a unique act of faith and love for Jesus in the there and the then. But they leave this pattern that has continued down for us even today of bold, courageous faith and of costly sacrifice and worship. 
And I think that it's here that we're actually confronted with the two areas that at least in our culture we struggle with the most today. Being a courageous witness for Christ and offering a costly sacrifice, having a generous way of life for Him. We struggle to identify with Jesus in the public square and we struggle to let go of our belongings and those things which are precious to us for His sake. Statistically, personal evangelism and ministry involvement is lower now than it was among the churches in America just a decade ago. As Phil Riken in his commentary points out, as a church culture in this country, we've moved a long way from full Sundays, Wednesday prayer gatherings, and regular nights of church-wide outreach on a weekly basis. I'm not saying that those specific things need to come back in our church life, but I do think it's a telling trend. One that was driven home to me a few years ago when so many churches canceled Sunday morning worship because it happened to be Christmas Day. Where, where have the priorities shifted for us? Somehow we seem to forget that the Jesus who gave wonderful promises like, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Also said things like this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does a profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I think in Joseph we see the opposite of our lives, not all the time, but largely. Grasping too tightly to things in this world, keeping quiet about the man who endured all this to bring us to God. But that's not a sufficient response to the cross of Christ. That's not the way we've been called to show our love and our thankfulness to our Savior who sacrificed so much. The question is, how shall we change it's not enough to simply feel bad that we fail. Guilt is never going to motivate us and sustain us over the long term for change. But the glory of Christ will. We see in Exodus 33, Moses begged God, give me a vision, help me to see your glory that I might be sustained to lead your people through the wilderness and into the promised land how much more might we be sustained and encouraged and emboldened by a vision of the glory of the Lord Jesus who is the fullness of God's glory. Like an irradiated metal when Moses came down from the mountain having just the, 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 the smallest hint of God's glory exposed to him. His face literally shone bright. It glowed and the people were afraid and made him wear a, a mask to cover it up. How might we be changed if we stared intently day after day, week after week, month after month into the shining face of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul says to the Colossians. If you who have been raised with Christ, that is, you've put your faith in Him, if you've been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. 
It's not surprising why godly believers throughout church history have said things like this from John Owen. The reason why the spiritual life in our souls decays and withers is because we fill our minds full of other things. And these things weaken the power of grace. But when the mind is filled with thoughts of Christ and His glory, these things will be expelled. So let us live in constant contemplation of the glory of Christ and power then will flow from Him to us, healing all our declensions, renewing a right spirit in us, and enabling us to abound in all the duties that God requires of it. Speaking personally now, Owen says, On Christ's glory, I would fix all my thoughts and desires. And the more I see of the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes, and I will be more and more crucified to this world. It will become to me like something dead and putrid, impossible for me to enjoy. In the opening verses of this gospel, Luke has been building to this climax, the atoning death of Jesus who now brings salvation to the world. Here we see the glory of Christ. But even as darkness covers the land and perhaps even our own souls in grief over Jesus' death, Luke isn't finished. We're not done in his gospel. The story isn't over. There is more glory to behold. Even now, Jesus has promised that death will not have victory over him. So as we begin this thoughtful reflection on the glory of Christ's death, we remember that something else is coming. His death was only a prelude to his resurrection, the promise and power of a new life for his people. Father, we pray that we would experience that power not just of His atoning work on the cross, but also His resurrecting power from the grave. That by faith in Him, we would feel ourselves dead to our old lives in Adam and alive to a new life in Christ. We pray, God, that as we think about the the power and the effectiveness of Christ as our Savior, that we would look to someone like Joseph as an example. Who motivated by the death of Jesus makes clear to the world where his priorities lie. God, who makes clear even to the women, the rest of God's people, where his priorities lie and is an encouragement to them. Father, you have called us to faith in your Son, and you have called us to live by that faith in Him. You've given us your Spirit to do that. And Father, we pray that we would find ourselves changed in our thinking, in our feeling, in our living, as we again and again and again return to the glory of your Son and behold it by faith. Father, this is our prayer this morning. We ask it in His name. Amen.